0: There are certain questions that are showstoppers in the best sense. Asking patients what matters to you instead of what's the matter definitely tops the list in the last few years, partly because it's one of those open-ended questions we're all working harder on using these days. And in healthcare, asking and really wanting to know what matters to someone who may be in the throes of dealing with any number of complex or serious health problems gives patients permission to express more of who they are and their priorities and help drive shared decision making. And clinicians are reminded that they're interacting with full human beings whose outlook on life and health deserve to inform medical treatment. So what does this all look like in practice? How are efforts to embed what matters to you in healthcare fairing? We're going to explore some of this on uh, this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live, bi-weekly, and also on demand via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm still IHI's Director of Communications as well. I want to wish everyone a Happy New Year. This is our first show of the new year, 2016. We always want to acknowledge right off the bat that two healthcare quality leaders and champions of person centered care, Susan Edgman Leviton and Michael Barry, introduced the idea of asking what matters to you in a published article in 2012. IHI's own Maureen Bizignano then shined a light on the idea in her 2013 National Forum speech. Since then, a group here at IHI has been working hard to spread what matters thinking and also learn from healthcare teams that are showing us the way. So I'm eager to get to those introductions from some of those folks showing us the way in just a moment. But first, here's IHI's John Gothier with some reminders about how to take part in today's program. John.
1: All right. Thanks. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screen is our chat window. And if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about all the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto your computer and listening to the program by streaming audio, coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable Internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. But a simple audio solution to any hiccup may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press Play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Magic. All
0: right. Thanks a lot, John. And if any- If anyone is having any sound issues, uh, apart from John's instructions, you can also direct your comments to the WI, excuse me, the WebEx administrator or WIHI admin in your uh, chat bar there, and John will see if he can help you out there. We're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We also welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including our handle, at the IHI, in your tweets. That way, IHI can engage some others in our topic today. All right, I talked about all those folks showing us the way, and that's why we're so thrilled to have the panel with us uh, on this WIHI. On the phone from Scotland, we have Jennifer Rogers, who is Chief Nurse for Pediatric and Neonatal Services for NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde. Jennifer provides professional leadership to over 1,000 registered nurses and over 300 nursing support staff at several hospitals. Phew. Welcome, Jen. So glad you can be with us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, all right. Fa- fa- okay, fantastic. Also with us from Scotland at Gen Side, Geraldine Marsh is the Improvement Advisor for Older People's Care, NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, and Healthcare Improvement Scotland. As Lead Nurse within Medicine for the Elderly at the Southern General Hospital in Glasgow, she implemented What's Important to Me, a tool she's going to tell us more about. Welcome, Geraldine. Hi. Hi, folks. <laughs> Hi back. Heading over to the West Coast in the United States, we have Paula Suter now, who serves as the clinical director for the Sutter Center of Integrated Care in Northern California. Paula's passion is to advance the principles and practices of true person-centered care delivery. Welcome, Paula. Thank you, Matt. And Paula works closely with Beth Hennessy, who is the executive director of the Sutter Center for Integrated Care. And Beth leads the development and implementation of new approaches for sustainable, high quality, patient centered care. Welcome, Beth. Thank you, Madge. Fantastic. And here in the studio with me is Christina Gunther Murphy. She's an executive director at the IHI, and she oversees IHI's person and family-centered care focus area. In this role, she is responsible for designing and executing the overall portfolio strategy among about a zillion things. Welcome, Christina. Thanks so much, Madge. All right. So we're going to start with Christina. Uh, I also want to, just before I forget, if you're also looking for slides and you phoned in only on today's show, You can ask for those slides by emailing info at IHI.org. All right, we're going to get underway. So, Christina, just a little over a month ago, you and most of our panelists were at IHI's National Forum sharing some of what we'll be going over today. On the one hand, there's this simple idea. If you want to know, and you should want to know, what matters to patients uh, and perhaps family members as well, just ask. Still, opening up this line of inquiry needs to be part of a thoughtful process. And I'd love for if you could get us started by talking about that process from IHI's perspective, what you're learning, and why do you think this question, what matters to you, has really from the get-go uh, just lit a match under folks, and it's been a real galvanizing force.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Madge. It's just such a thrill to be here, and I can't wait for you to hear from some of the presenters we have lined up today. I'm going to answer your second question first, uh, which is kind of, why is this really connected to and taken off, particularly around person-centered care, and I think really at the end of the day, it's the heart of person-centered care. Whether we talk about kind of the methods around shared decision-making or patient engagement or co-design or shifting the balance of power, all of that is really centered in one simple question that's the essence of it all, and that's structuring care about around what matters to the person, the family, the carers. But it's also in a very complex healthcare world, we're amazed that this one simple change, when so many things are incredibly complex, has ended up having a powerful and fundamental impact on organizations. And I think the really interesting thing is people around the world have sent us stories about how this small change has had a big impact. Now, while it seems simple, uh, actually implementing is anything but easy. And I just want to highlight a couple of things that organizations should consider as they think about this. So the first is that it's the concept, not the words, um, that are most important here. And clinicians don't have to ask the exact question, what matters to you? And in fact, in some contexts, that question might be confusing. Um, Different questions work better in different contexts. For example, if you're in a surgical context, you might want to ask patients what they want to be doing six months from now that they're not doing today or a question on the variant. And as you'll hear from Jen Rogers, sometimes it's not asking people at all, but having them draw or right, getting kids engaged with markers to really think about this. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is we know that clinicians out there are incredibly well-intentioned, but and they want to know what matters. But with increasing burdens on time, it can be really challenging to add one more thing to the workday. And they might worry that what really matters to patients is beyond their control. If I ask the question, I have to do something about it. So this is where IHI's methodology around small tests of change and plan-do-study-act cycles can be really, really powerful. And clinicians can actually test their theories, and in our experience, trying this with one or two patients often allays fears, kind of reconnects them to the heart of medicine in a very powerful way. Um, And this is really that type of change where teams benefit from getting out of conference rooms, starting small, and adapting and learning their approach over the time. I will also say that when teams start small as your hill from Geraldine, often it results in powerful stories that allow more adoption over time. And I'll talk about this a little bit more, but also thinking about how much extra time this is taking and how do you design a system that really honors how busy clinicians are and be thoughtful approach to managing extra time. The second thing I want to say is just that, like most changes, this is an example where designing and testing systems to reduce kind of the reliance on memory is really an important approach. And IHI actually had the, the pleasure of adopting the and inheriting the Always Event concept from the Picker Institute. And this is one of many approaches that I think has been a very powerful way to help organizations think about understanding what matters co-designing, but then also using the principles of reliability to accelerate the efforts and certainly you can learn more about that on IHI.org as well. Fourth is that if you're an individual clinician, we really encourage you, we hope you'll try this in your own organizations, but there's really an additive effect if this is part of a learning system within the organization to link the individual responses to kind of the larger population you're serving. And that will also help clinicians that might be worried about not being able to address individuals' needs. So for example, if you learn that a large majority of your patients being discharged are worried about affording their medication, you can actually build systems to leverage community assets to help patients access medicines as opposed to one by one trying to help each patient. And then lastly, I just, you know, one of the things that you'll hear as you hear from our different presenters is that the system they started with is not necessarily the system they ended with. And organizations should be really thoughtful about how to scale this pr- approach. So as I said, starting small, learning quickly is a good place to start, but you'll want to be thinking about how to scale it up. So for example, and this really links to time, if you're in an office practice, the primary care doctor may be able to add time when you're trying with just five patients. But as you get to 25 or 125, asking them to just keep adding that to office visits doesn't necessarily make sense. And we know that a lot of different office practices have done things like use physician assistants or pre-visit planning to actually embed that question as you get to scale. So uh, just to reiterate, kind of asking what matters is as much a symbol as a process step about really caring and deeply connecting with your patients. And as you'll be hearing that for different stories today from our guests, they'll share the same common element that kind of Focusing on this individual needs, desires, wishes, and preferences is really the core of this work.
0: Okay. Thank you so much, Christina. And we did move through uh, your slides uh, quickly, uh, but just a reminder, they'll be posted to the website tomorrow. There's a link uh, in the chat where you can get them, and you can also get them by emailing info at IHI.org. So thank you, Christina. Very, very helpful framing. And I especially appreciated your opening comment that these aren't necessarily the exact words one needs to use. It really is is the concept, and I think that's going to get reinforced uh, throughout the hour. All right, we're going to now hop across the pond and go over to Scotland um, and speak to Jen Rogers and Geraldine Marsh, and we'll start with Jen, I believe. Uh, NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde in Scotland first learned about the power of what matters to you in pediatrics, which is a great place to start. So, Jen, uh, give us some framing, uh, orient us a little bit, and talk about the work uh, that then uh, migrated over. Uh two adults and uh Geraldine will will pick up the baton from you. Thanks again.
3: Hi hi everyone. So I I heard Maureen Busignano speak in twenty twelve at the forum in Paris. And I heard her speak about asking what matters. And at the time I was a senior charge nurse, I had no award. So it was easy for me to go back and go to our little huddle and say okay guys today instead of thinking about what's the matter we're going to ask what matters and people actually laughed at me at the time so um they said oh you know as we were just saying christine oh a bit of a fear about what patients would say so um, just seeing our slides there, that's where we are. <laughs> We're actually in Scotland, so it's got a population of around 5 million. Where we are is the biggest health order, though it looks the smallest geographically. It's got the highest population. So if we just move on to the next slides, I'll just kind of whiz through them because we've got quite a lot. Um, the asking what matters isn't really a new idea, as you can see from this around 2,500 years ago we realized it was more important to know what sort of a person has a disease than what sort of um, disease a person has. So just moving on. This is about shifting your perspective and about the way that you think and approach things. It's also about flipping the power balance that's been ongoing for quite a long time. So it's about letting down those barriers and really collaborating and changing expectations Um, and I think this is a thing when we start to ask what matters we don't actually realise how big a psychological shift it is, not just in terms of that relationship with the patient but in terms of the culture of your unit and in healthcare This was one of the first wee boys that I asked and this wee guy, Declan, he was 11 and he was in a room on his own for um, around 11 weeks because his mum couldn't stay in with him and he had a orthopedic um, injury so that's the first thing you don't know moaning and you know that kind of thing some people moan if they go in and make a bed they might have a wee moan about something he didn't you know patients will pick up on that and an 11 year old boy to write that is number one I don't want to hear people moaning I'm in this room all the time every day and I don't want to hear people moaning that come in Um, don't forget about me some other things that children have said, I get the right medicine. This was a wee boy of eight years old that has cystic fibrosis. I think that asking what matters gives us a position where we don't assume we understand what children in this case are thinking. Because we do assume that we know what children are thinking or worrying about. And the reality is we don't. They say things that are much more profound that we haven't actually considered that they're worrying about. And we certainly never thought that wee eight-year-old boy was worrying about getting the right medicine. Lots of people say the nurses are nice to me and help me. Um, Another surprising thing children said was that they get a good sleep at night. It was always assumed that children weren't that bothered about noise at night. So now we're looking at noise reduction in our paediatric areas as well as studies around that we've done in our adult facilities. Um, Older children, teenagers like to be kept informed. They like to be treated appropriately for their age. These things aren't surprising, but they never got an opportunity to see them before. Um, And we really probably assumed that we were telling them what they needed to know, but maybe we weren't. Um, we I, I started this as a quality improvement project, so I did start with one patient going up and up, and this was our process data once I spread the idea from one ward over to the Scotland's largest paediatric hospital, so we didn't start off very well. People um, weren't altogether delighted by the idea. They said, oh, we know what matters to our patients. So We have this sense that we know what matters to our patients, but how do we know if we don't ask them? So... We, we gathered stories and Kendra's story that you showed earlier was one of those stories and that really boosted people's understanding of the, the concept of asking what matters. And you can see there how we we finally came became um, reliable at asking what matters. For me, it's not enough to just say we're asking a few patients what matters. We have to be asking every patient every time what matters and listening to what matters and doing what matters. We got some patient and family feedback. From the children, so the children can read it and not feel so scared. It's a real scary situation for children being in hospital. Um, it's a way of letting people know. It's nice to be involved. People feel like you're truly collaborating with them. They say things and they write things and they draw things that they would never, you would never get that information out of them unless you had this tool.
0: Great. Okay. So we're now. Um, thank you, uh, Jen. Yep. And are we moving over to Geraldine now? Uh- <laughs> yes, so,
3: so this is um, spreading to Geraldine came to see me and said, okay, you can do it in children, let's do it in older people too. So here's Geraldine.
0: Thank you.
4: Thank you. Hi, thanks, Jen. So as, as Jen said, I had heard about the work she was doing with um the, the children and actually I was managing uh, seven medicine for the elderly wards and I thought well you know actually if Jen can do it in um, paediatrics um, maybe I can do it in older people and actually when I looked at some and Jen showed me some of the stories and, and it actually resonated with me so things that the children were writing things like don't forget about me um No moaning, talk to me, not my mum and dad. And that really resonated with me that that could be what our older people said. So I wasn't going to um, get the the older people to draw the way Jen had done with the kids. So this was our first draft and it was just a, a, a spider diagram of kind of asking patients what what's important to me. So I went back and went into one of the wards and asked one of the the nurses just to try it on one patient. And um, we were really blown away about what happened. We don't have a picture of Rosie's story um, or, or what matters to me because we didn't think it would have the impact that it had. But Rose was an 88-year-old lady who had advanced dementia and she was in my geriatric orthopaedic rehab ward and she had been there following a fractured femur. She couldn't really um, speak. Um, she had very little safety awareness. She had fallen at home and then fallen in hospital and sustained a fractured neck of femur and she she would quite often try to mobilise on her own and would become very distressed at times. So we got to the stage where we had to have a nurse sitting with her all the time just to keep her safe. And we decided to try what matters to me with, with um, Rose. And we spoke to her nieces and said, tell us a little bit about Rose and tell us about her. Um, so after a few kind of discussions backwards and forwards, one of the nieces said, you know, Actually, now that you see it, I've never seen my aunt Rose without her rosary beads. And when we looked, her rosary beads were tucked away in her bedside drawer in case they got lost. So we put the the what matters to me above Rosie's bed. And one of the things that we put on it, as well as the fact that she had two nieces, um, was that she always wanted her rosary beads in her hand, and every morning you would, I would go in and I would see Rose with her rosary beads in her hand. And very gradually, Rose became less distressed and actually stopped mobilising on her own um, and started um, and became more settled. And we could withdraw the one to one. And a few few months later what I discovered was that, you know, there were times when Rose would become quite distressed and wouldn't want to get um showered or dressed in the morning and one of the nurses would just quite quietly go and sit down beside Rose and you know, start her off saying saying the rosary and she would be quite settled. Now we don't know because we can't ask Rose, but I'm quite sure that part of that was her becoming more settled was the fact that she had a rosary beads with her Um, and we would never have known that information about Rose if we hadn't taken the time. So we had used that and we decided to do it in just cognitively impaired patients and another lady in the same ward um, said this day when she saw a a patient getting the what matters to me done with her, why am I not getting one of these and the said, well, that's because, you know, Jean here, she 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 forgets things and you, you know, you can tell the nurses what matters to you. And she said, yeah, but nobody's ever asked me. So that was enough for us to say, well, actually, we need to spread this. And I took it to the ward next door. So one ward, we'd started off one patient, one, you know, one nurse, and we spread it to that ward. And we, we then took it to the ward next door, and I was... I said to the nurses, I want you to do this and I was told, how dare you insult us, we know everything about our, our patients, we know everything and I said, right, let's take Barbara here, what do you know about Barbara and they could tell me everything that she needed she walked with a Zimmer who her um, next of kin were thought she, needed that, um, she had to get some more physio and um, she to get a home assessment before she was discharged that she lived alone, she had carers, um, and she was partially sighted. So I said, right, fair enough. So you do know all about Rose, uh, all about Barbara. So let's um, do a what matters to me with Barbara. And when we saw what mattered to Barbara, it really blew, blew us away because what we didn't know about Barbara was that she had lived in Rio de Janeiro for 42 years of her life and she spoke fluent Portuguese. Now, not very many people in the south side of Glasgow can I tell you speak Portuguese. Um, she had also been um, given an MBE from the Queen for her charity work um, and that she had a son. Now, we didn't know anything about the son. The only thing that we actually knew about Barbara was that she was partially sighted. We had no idea of any of the stuff that, that we had. So. Yes, we knew about Barbara as a patient, but we knew nothing about Barbara as a person. And Barbara was quite quite withdrawn, and was you know at the stage where the, the medical staff were about to were thinking about starting her in a, a mild dose of antidepressants. And once we had this, what matters to me above her bed, everybody would come into the room and just you know take do a double take and say, "Really, you lived in me as a General What was that like?" Tell us all about it, and Barbara would just light up and wanted to tell you know all the patients, the visitors, the the domestic staff, and she would hold court and telling people about her life and the the person that she actually was. So that for us was enough. We had them staff coming in from other wards just to see it. Well, what we didn't know that when we started the What Matters to Me is that we had other unintended consequences because what we actually saw was um, quite a stark reduction in falls um, in uh, our wards because what we were actually doing was finding out about that unmet need. So we did find that, you know, our falls went down just simply by asking the patients what mattered to them and being able to, to look at that. We also found that um, complaints were reduced, and that we had um, patient and staff um, satisfaction was increased. So the staff felt more confident, particularly dealing with patients with cognitive impairment, because when they would get quite distressed, um, and really, you know, the staff didn't know what. what how to deal with them, a quick glance above their bed can usually find something to bring them back and fix them back in. So we certainly found that the patient and that staff felt more confident in dealing with patients and relatives felt as if we actually knew the, the, the patient um, as a person rather than just a patient or a condition in a bed.
0: Geraldine, I'm going to just say, uh, can we uh, hold it there with all this? This is fabulous, just because I see we're a little behind schedule, um, but that's because there's just always so much rich material, and it's hard to estimate how to get it all out there. But we, I know you have a little bit more. You had one more example about spread, but how about we hold that idea. Uh, we'll get it into uh, the Q&A. Does that sound okay? And so we can perfect. perfect. Well, thank you for those very compelling uh, stories. I think we'll all be thinking about Rose and and Barbara uh, and all those kids um, that you uh, shared with us and kind of brought into our midst here uh, via the wonders of virtual (laughs) connection here. So thank you, Geraldine and Jen. I want to now turn to uh, uh, Beth. I think we'll start with uh, At Sutter Health. Um, I think what's really fascinating uh, there is just uh, how iterative it's been at Sutter in terms of the learning and hopefully you all get a a sense of what Sutter has been doing and it will echo some of the things you've already been hearing about. So Beth, shall we start with you?
5: Sure, thanks. I want to start by briefly telling you about Sutter Health and where we've initiated this work. Paul and I work at the Sutter Center for Integrated Care within Sutter Health System and Sutter Health is a large not-for-profit healthcare system in Northern California. Our target population for this always event is all home health and hospice patients on service at are Care at Home, and our average daily census in the two programs combined is in excess of 5,000 patients a day. When we consistently initiate care with what matters most versus what's the matter, we have found in its most basic form, it shifts our care from being clinician-directed or clinician-ordered to patient, or better yet, person-guided. I'd like to tell you a patient story to illustrate how our care is different with this approach. We were privileged to serve a 74-year-old gentleman I will refer to as Mr. Smith, who had stage four heart failure and was a widow who lived alone with no family in the area. In the past, we would have initiated our care by asking, what's the matter? And we would have learned that he continues to gain fluid and weight which was aggravating his heart condition we would have jumped into our clinician mode and obtained orders for prescription for a diuretic reinforcing his need to adhere to a low sodium diet and fluid restriction of course all of these things are important but they're not the whole story when we asked mr smith what was most important to him We learned that his number one priority was to attend the Romeo Club, which stands for Retired Old Men Eating Out. Once a week, he and his buddies would go out to eat, and he would have his favorite meal of hamburger and french fries, which was, of course, loaded with sodium, and he would retain fluid and gain weight. When we learned that eating out with his his friends was what mattered most to Mr. Smith, we shifted the focus of our teaching and care on how he could adjust his diet the day before, the morning of, and the evening after, so he did not end up with excessive sodium in the subsequent fluid gain. But another important part about identifying what matters most is the information follows the patient throughout the whole continuum of care. For example, when we first took care of Mr. Smith, he was in home health, and when he transferred to hospice, the hospice team arranged for the Romeo Club to come to his home and bring him this meal, even when he could only take a bite even after Mr. Smith died we were able to offer bereavement support to the members of the Romeo Club because they were his extended family and a part of what mattered most to them. In our experience we have found the most important factor to promote adoption and spread of our always event has been the leadership buy-in and support and the commitment to create a learning environment. Our always event is identified as a Sutter Care at Home organizational strategic priority to enhance patient experience. We also create this learning environment at every meeting from the boardroom to case conference to staff meetings with patient stories. We tell these stories and have found they have fueled adoption by other providers as they quickly demonstrate What a profound and lasting difference our clinicians are making in the lives of patients and families when we take the time to learn what matters most. At this point, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague Paula Suter for additional remarks. Thanks. um, To your original question, Hedge. All right. Thank
0: you, Beth. Very interesting. We'll be thinking about Romeo, too, the Romeo Club. Thank you.
6: Yes. um, Thank you. What I want to talk about is um, how we made this always event of asking what matters most actionable and I want to start off by just pointing you to this quote because I love it. It, it really illustrates not only the power of questions but um, really kind of speaks to the fact that it's the kinds of questions that we ask our patients um, that can really be key to gaining a better understanding of what matters most. Virtually everything we think and do is determined by the questions we ask. I love this quote. We found in our care delivery model um, that we use uh, at our organization that certain questions seem to be more fruitful uh, and really help facilitate a real conversation with a patient, certain open-ended questions. And I'm going to share some of these very basic questions in just a minute. I do want to stress, though, that clinicians They do need some training related to communication best practices, and they also need some training with regard to what barriers they might face when they're asking such a personal question so they can be prepared for them. And I'm going to give you just two brief examples. When we first rolled out our Always event, we conducted a small test of change um, with um, a few patients and asked what matters most at the beginning of our start of care. We found that some of the patients weren't ready to divulge this information yet because it seemed too broad. So we realized that with some patients, we needed to change our always event um, by starting out instead by asking, um, what concerns you the most today? And then this, this lets them know that their agenda trumps ours, and it starts to forge a relationship. And then we can get to what matters most a little later on in the visit or at a subsequent visit. So lack of trust could be an issue. Another issue could be um, depression. Uh, when we tested this with one patient, the patient couldn't come up with anything that mattered most to her. And upon more questioning by the nurse, she realized that this patient had lost all interest in things that were important to her. And so she um, figured out that she was probably depressed and I think she figured that out quite quickly, uh, more so than if she just went down a checklist. So that's another barrier to anticipate. So you know excellent communication is really a critical component to patient engagement, and we, we understand that. That's why we invest in educating our staff on good communication techniques. Uh, and what you're seeing on the screen here is um, about both a technique and a tool. We, for example, use something called ORS um, that we teach our clinicians to use. This is a um, sent client-centered approach uh, coming from motivational interviewing, and it stands for the use of open-ended questions affirming the patient, reflecting, uh, listening, and summarizing what we hear uh, back to the patient. And there is, by the way, lots of information about ORS used on the Internet. Over time, we found that questions like, what would you like to have happen as a result of our care? How would you like to feel? What is one thing that's most important to you that you want to be able to do again? Um, We're very fruitful in helping us identify what matters most to the patient. In hospice, for example, we might ask, what would a good day look like to you? Then we teach our clinicians how to listen reflectively Um, using the ORS technique and reflect back what matters most to the patient. And what the patient sees from this is that this is so important to us that we get it right. That's why we're reflecting back this information. Um, Also, to what you're seeing on the screen is a page from our patient personal health record titled Things That Are Important to Me. And we use this with patients in the hospital to first identify what their concerns are going home, and then um, when the patient brings this home, the uh, field clinicians then can continue this discussion by bringing this up again with the patient, and then continuing on down the page with those cues to help them have a good discussion with the patient with regard to what matters most. So this has really helped facilitate consistent um, delivery of this always event from patient to patient to patient. And then um, what I'd like to do is just quickly describe um, our plans to scale up our um, practice and further embed it in our care delivery. We have a very large remote patient monitoring program uh, at our organization, um, in particular for patients at high risk for readmission. And our philosophy regarding technology is really that the care delivery model should drive how the technology is used, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're going to be testing 4G internet-ready tablets that we're going to give to patients at high risk for readmission during their episode of care. Um, This tablet's Bluetooth-enabled. It's going to collect biometric data, such as blood pressure, heart rate, etc., but it also has the ability to facilitate virtual visits, our telehealth nurse is going to use the tablet to conduct pre-scheduled virtual visits specifically for the purpose of discussing what matters most with the patient and also helping the patient understand how the clinical goals that we're asking them to work on are tied to what what matters most. So they're going to use these virtual visits to coach patients to communicate the patient's progress toward their goal to the nurse case manager in between their home visits. And it's our hope that the patient, as a result, is going to feel like they're being cared for by a team that all places what matters most in the center of care delivery.
0: All right. That sounds like a wrap on those initial comments. Uh, thank you so much Paula and Beth and before the two of you uh, Geraldine and Jen and then Christina and we did go a little over our half hour mark here thank you for your patience uh, uh, lots of really really good stuff here and uh, my my wheels are, are turning but we want to now hear from you our audience uh, what, what kinds of things have struck you uh, and uh, just a reminder reminder, what thing we always try to do on WHI is we're going to leave you uh, uh, on an, our archive page for the show tons of resources and ways for you to follow up. Also, all the slides of our guests today do have email addresses. If you We don't get to every single one of the questions here. Quickly, John, do you want to just remind people about the use of chat?
1: Just make sure that all your questions and comments are directed to all participants in the chat. Thank you very much. Okay.
0: So I'm going to just start with, Cindy had a question. She says, will you please share your thoughts about the best way for nurses and doctors to practice role-playing therapeutic communication? Uh, let's, uh, well, I don't know, let's let's start with uh, NHS Scotland. I don't, Geraldine or Jen, do you do role-playing uh, as part of the training and skill-building amongst practitioners?
3: Um in Scotland, we don't do so much role play than probably you do <laughs> in the US. But oh, a, c- a big I'll cultural
6: difference.
0: <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what we
4: would do, what we have done is actually some of the teams have asked the staff what matters to them. Yeah. So some of the, the you know, the, the ward teams have actually put up of what matters to them so that the team can actually do that. So that's about putting themselves, I suppose, and, and for them thinking, well, actually, how, you know, how it feels to fill in of what matters to me.
0: Okay, that's good. Uh, thank you, uh, Beth and, and or Paula. Uh, what about Ed Sutter? Is there that kind of, uh, whether role-playing or anything similar?
6: Uh, Yes, this is Paula. We do have a very specific course that each and every clinician is required to complete um, upon coming to work at our agency, and the course involves role-playing. We have specific patient scenarios. Um, These are scenarios of things that, uh, again, maybe some barriers that the clinician may face when they're going out and asking such a personal question, so they read the scenario and they role-play Um, how they might respond. But I think what really has helped them the most is we have um, care conferences weekly, and we ask at the beginning of every conference, um, who has used this Always event this week? How did it go? And they get to hear from their colleagues about what works well and what doesn't, and that really does seem to help um, improve their practice as well, hearing from their colleagues.
0: Thanks, Paula. Uh, Beth, I guess let me just stick with you uh, just for a moment. Uh, are you um, in, in any way measuring patient satisfaction? Uh, the NHS team looked in particular at falls, and I think there were, I, I may have, we may have not used that slide around complaints uh, that, that also reduced uh, falls even more important. Uh, what, what are you measuring, uh, and is patient satisfaction part of that?
5: And, um, within our H HTAPS questions in the home health, we are looking at a particular question that really has to do with whether or not the patient felt like we listened to them and we involved them in their care. And so it's a measure to see um, if, if, in fact, we are moving the needle on that. And we are happy to report that in the instances where we have both process metrics showing that we are moving the needle in and getting this implemented consistently we are also moving the needle in patient satisfaction and then one other quick comment from a role-playing standpoint the other practice we have implemented back to christina's comments earlier about creating a learning environment is our supervisors do what what are called um, ride-along visits with staff and they're actually Um, watching how the staff engage patients with this question and use this question or different questions. And in fact, after the visit, give them feedback and support and encouragement. So it's a, a real life observation.
0: Thank you very much. Um, Geraldine, we'll, we'll go back to you folks. And, Christina, feel free to weigh in if you're hearing things from different teams about documenting. Uh, where, where does the information live, a uh, questioner is asking, and uh, are there are some sort of best practices in that way and how it gets communicated uh, across uh, a team. Um, let me start with uh, you folks in Scotland first, Geraldine or Jen
4: yeah for both um pediatrics and um older people we put it above the patient's bed or on the outside of the door. So it's really visible. Um, One of the questions that we're quite often asked is about confidentiality. But actually it's about, there's nothing there that the patient doesn't want to be displayed. So we tell the patient right away that this is going, you know, above their bed. It's an A3 sheet of paper that's clearly visible to everybody that's coming in and engaging with that patient.
3: And the the other thing about that, the visibility, it was acknowledging that you have, as a patient, you have interaction with many, many people when you're in the bed. So it's not just doctors or nurses that are looking through and have access to those notes. It's, it's domestic staff, it's phlebotomy staff, it's allied health professionals. It's, it's a whole range of people that wouldn't look at notes, but straight away we'll see you as a person and we'll be able to have a conversation with you. And these are things that make a big difference to patients in hospitals.
0: Okay, thank you. Christina.
2: Yeah, I was just going to add. I think um, even testing the approach of how to document and share it. I know a lot of our teams who are doing work on end of life have been really thoughtful about if they do understand what matters, how does that actually flow with the patient? So I think, you know, in an acute ward, it probably makes sense over the bed that works, as as Geraldine said, assuming there's no HIPAA uh, non-compliant information there. In other or using a whiteboard, I think in other cases, if you can figure out a way to get it into the electronic medical record, or we've also seen organizations that have really relied on the patient or person to they start to feel free to share that actually at more visits once they've been asked once they realize that there's some real value there so i think certainly starting with a less intense way and just like sutter's done kind of scaling up more to the electronic health record or other methods once you kind of know you have the right question and the right information thank you there's a question and there's two questions that i'll, I'll throw together about spread
0: further uh at sutter into the sort of throughout the system uh, and also ac- including from acute care to home care. So um, anything uh, either one of you, either uh, Beth or Paula, would like to say about um, kind of moving, moving these, these practices uh, organization-wide?
5: Um, this is Beth, and absolutely, that is the next level but when we talked about the spreading in home care and hospice, and is now um, we are initiating work um, as we speak to move it to the federal health level, um, again, with the same concepts and principles of what we've just been discussing from a training role-playing. Um, observation standpoint, but equally as important, the question that it got asked about documentation and how can, in fact, um, we get this in the electronic medical health record that is accessible to all providers across the continuum. And um, that is our plan as far as next steps. Okay, great. Yes,
6: and, and I can, I can, oh, oh I'm sorry. No, please also go also ahead. Add, yeah. <laughs> I was also going to add that we have created a, a portal on our intranet where we are placing a lot of our um, uh, patient-centered tools so that everyone throughout the system can access them. As an example, that patient personal health record that we showed a, a page from uh, is on, going to be on the internet. It's a health literate tool, um, and again, it does have a lot of information in there about what matters most to the patient and has a, a page called My Story as well. Um, that everyone will have access to throughout the entire system.
0: Okay. There was a clarifying question. Somebody, uh, another Jen, wrote, "Moving the needle on patient satisfaction. You're seeing results in your HCAP scores?" Question mark. <laughs> Did I hear that right? <laughs>
5: Our our home health patient satisfaction scores HH
0: cap. HH, okay, very good. That's a helpful clarification. Thank you. Still important. Um, A question about how the Glasgow team uh, takes that what matters data and has it make sure it's useful and used on future visits with patients across an episode of care uh, related to that kind of common view across the teams. Um, Jen or Geraldine?
4: Yeah, what we do um, here is the the What Matters to Me can follow the patient, Um, so if the patient is moved from one ward to another or even home, they can take their What Matters to Me home with them. There there has been a bit of a school of thought that perhaps that we should be scanning it into the health record to use it again but you need to suppose recognise that actually what matters to somebody um, and this episode of care might not matter to them uh, in future episodes of care. So, you know, it is about asking that question and recognising that what matters to people can actually change, particularly in older people. So what matters to them may well be, you know, and to children. What matters to me might be a member, a family member, a a who in the next episode of care may well have have died. So you do need to recognise that. But we do it does follow them through the, their initial patient journey, and the what matters to me goes with them. So okay. it's not that it's redone.
0: Okay, thank you very yeah. much. Go. Oh, and what about – I wasn't sure if there was a question there. What about the uh, the telehealth that you're doing uh, at Sutter that you're getting underway? There was a question about um, sort of how that – I'm trying to remember where that question went. I'm scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Somebody wanted to know a little bit more about that. All right, that's my bad. And I
2: think um, how Go to ahead. pay for it. How so to interested in how to fund it. Oh, how,
0: how you fund that. Really Thank you, Christina. Sorry, I lost my way there on the <laughs> scroll bar. Uh, can you d- talk? to that a little bit more uh, either uh, Beth or Paula here did you go how did you Beth. fund how did you fund the tablets for patients are you billing the telehealth visits with the CCM codes which you can maybe decipher for the rest of us right,
6: right. And actually no we don't bill for um, telehealth visits right now the way that home health is paid is is similar to a DRG system. We get paid um, a lump-sum payment for an episode of care, but based on um, the patient's uh, condition. Um, but what we have done is we, you know, we have invested in remote patient monitoring uh, and specifically we're very interested in this aspect of um, incorporating what matters most because we do believe that that is going to net us superior patient outcomes. And as we move from being reimbursed based on volume to reimburse based on value, we believe that this is a good investment and is going
0: to actually help us in the future. Okay, thank you very much. I wanted to ask a question of all of you uh, folks perhaps are are, uh, teeing up a few more about attitudes among staff. That came through in some of the prep materials I was looking at. Uh, Assumptions, you all spoke to the issue about sometimes staff assuming they know what matters to a patient or that they've got the picture when maybe (laughs) uh, they haven't made that open-ended inquiry. Um, But also just attitudes uh, in general uh, about having this level and this kind of engagement. Maybe I'll um, start with the folks in Scotland first. I mean, what are you finding are some of the challenges and things that need to be worked on? And then I'll talk to the team at Summer- Sutter as well. Thanks, Geraldine.
3: I think it's, Jen, I think certainly the challenges and something that I would say I underestimated was just how big a cultural shift, asking what matters is I thought it would be quite an easy change and actually implemented this project at the same time as two other projects that I thought would be much, much more challenging and actually this was the most challenging out of them and it's because it's changing the way people think about how they're providing that healthcare. So, so certainly it's challenging to get people. People are maybe afraid of asking what matters because they don't know what people are going to say. They think they're going to say something that they can't provide but actually that's not the case. But people. There is a bit of fear around it, so that was a challenge. So overcoming those challenges was just really through stories and then seeing how the actual process impacted so positively on the patients and families. So really patient stories was a big thing for for implementing this change.
0: Thank you. Um, And go ahead.
4: Yeah, I would would agree with that. I mean, certainly it's about... um, the, the most powerful way to to spread it is about telling stories and getting the staff to, to spread it for you. There was quite a bit of resistance as I said because there is this perception. People nurses in particular think that they know the patients, but actually they don't. Um and there is this bit about, you know, don't don't assu- you know, we assume that we know um, what the patient is. But there's also a wee bit of they cannot. Yeah, well, that's all very good. It's pink and floppy stuff, you know. Um, we're, we're too busy for any of that. And it's about saying to the the, the the staff, actually, this is really important. So if you've got a patient with cognitive impairment who can be quite distressed, taking time to actually find out what matters to them can actually save you a lot of time because you can actually help minimise the stress rather than you know having that. That um, difficult situation. So it is about, as Jen says, it's about changing attitudes and changing culture.
0: Thank you very much, Beth. And uh, what 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 would you say, uh, Beth and Paula, uh, either one of you, about kind of attitude issues?
6: Yeah. Uh, well, I, what I would say is that it it is a, a bit difficult for all of us as healthcare professionals to change. Our approach from being prescriptive to collaborative. You know, all of us I think believe that, um, you know, we we should have all the answers for the patient, and oftentimes we come to the table with the attitude that we know best, and we we're the expert, and we need to tell the patient what to do. But um, this really, you know, this conflicts with the basic concept of respecting what the patient brings to the table. And if we're we're listening to the patient with regard to what matters most, but at the same time we're thinking about how we're going to solve the patient's problems, we're not really listening. So you know we really have to change our uh, our thoughts about our role in uh, in, the, in a fundamental way. We really have to move more to be a collaborator instead of a director. And be willing to take the time to lay out options, even with regard to daily decision choices. This is, this is a different way of practicing, and it does uh, require a, a bit of an attitude adjustment.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, John, quickly, uh, speaking of collaboration and uh, <laughs> co-producing care uh, and being less prescriptive and uh, more on a team with patients themselves, uh, talk about the summit.
1: Yeah, a great place to have those conversations or to continue this conversation is at the IHI's uh, 17th Annual Summit on Improving Patient Care in the Office Practice and the Community, which we just like to call the Summit uh, to shorten it. For more information, visit IHI.org slash summit. Uh, but the quick details are it's March 20th through March 22nd down in Orlando at the World Center where we have the National Forum. So uh, visit the website and uh, give it a chance. All right. Thank you very much, John.
0: All right. We've come to uh, 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 the, almost the top of the hour, so we're going to start to wrap up. I'm going to uh, turn quickly to uh, Geraldine. So we'll make these kind of brief remarks. Geraldine, um, you and Jen, uh, then our folks at Sutter, and then Christina, sort of watch this space. Uh, what are you looking forward to now? Uh, as you alluded to some of that, but maybe just uh, leave us with some of those thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah,
4: I I think what we would really like to see now is that it just becomes embedded in just what we do. It's just normal practice for every patient in every ward to be, that we sit down with the patient and their family and we actually not only find out what matters to them, but that we actually, it's the so-called question that we actually take what matters to them and we actually actively listen to what what matters to them and and almost
3: deliver our care around what matters to them. And I think in addition to that, um, listening to the Sutter, um embedding this into our electronic records, we're we're kind of in a transitional period at the moment between paper and electronic records. But embedding that into that in this, this is a perfect opportunity then to embed the what matters to me in that and work around making that reliable process and you know learning from others about that I think that a year from now I would like to see us, us achieve something
0: like that. Fantastic I want to thank you both so much. Uh, Beth and uh, Paula some f- parting thoughts.
5: Yeah, this is Beth, and I I think I would just echo what Geraldine has just said and kind of reiterate that our hope is to spread this across all of Sutter Health for all providers so that all patients along the continuum can experience it, because at the end of the day, um, we do know clinicians want to deliver care um, that is respectful and person-centered and clearly evidence-based, and we want to move the needle on the patient experience in healthcare And... Um, it's pretty profound in our experience when we can change this practice and clinicians across the continuum, we have the potential to truly make a profound difference in the lives of patients and families we're privileged to serve and make a profound difference in the role that our clinicians play in delivering health care.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Beth Hennessy, Paula?
6: Yes, well, I'll just echo what Beth said. Um, In particular, we want every member of the care team, from the telehealth nurse to the nurse case manager to the therapist to the receptionist, to understand that this really needs to be the central focus of care, and um, we really want uh, everyone to, to realize that they have an important role in determining what matters most with the patient, but utilizing that information to drive the care delivery.
0: Okay, thank you so much, Paula Souter and Christina.
2: So just to say that we're eager to hear your stories. If you go to IHI.org, there is a What Matters page. There's some resources there. But more than anything, if you do this, if it's working, if you're learning something, whether it's working or not, tell us. We want to hear about it. And just a huge thanks to all, to Paula, Beth, Geraldine, and Jen, who have really rolled up their sleeves and turned a concept into pretty amazing results.
0: Well, thank you very much, Christina and Jen and Geraldine and Paula and Beth, who worked very, very hard with me in prepping for for uh, today's program. And I do want to say to everyone, I'm with nice uh, comments coming in through the chat, we are very sorry that there were some technical phone issues, not quite sure. We'll try to figure this out with WebEx. Uh, unfortunately, it's, sometimes it's very hard for us to fix this stuff in real time, um, but we'll try and uh, we're always striving to do better. And a reminder that the show will be put up on the website by tomorrow morning. Also, subscribe to Institute for Healthcare Improvement on iTunes, and you can find it there. And all the resources are on uh, the website as well. So we'll figure that piece out, but thank you for your patience, uh, everyone. Uh, big thank you again to the audience and today's guests. next up on WGI, IHI on January 28th. We're really going to be continuing this conversation in a way because when you hear from Victor Montori about shared decision-making, I can't think of anything more relevant than what matters to patients. Uh, he is really trying to revolutionize care for a lot of uh, chronic conditions And uh, I hope you'll tune into that program, same time, same station, uh, January 28th. A reminder, you'll be asked when you log off the program today if you want the slides or the chat or uh, anything else that was shared which you can do. uh, And also, uh, please, if you have a moment, fill out a brief survey and let us know what worked for you on today's program and how we can improve. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at ihi.org. A great team helped me every time we get a WIHI together. They include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane, Rossner Val, Weber, Ruth, James, and Haley Ladd. And I want to give a special thanks today to Katherine Mather, who uh, stepped up to do some tweeting during the show. And perhaps you might want to check out some of that as well. So it's my privilege again in 2016. I can't wait to. Uh, continue to engage with all of you throughout the year. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan.